This is Thinking in Public, a program dedicated to intelligent conversation about frontline theological and cultural issues with the people who are shaping them. I'm Albert Moeller, your host and president of the Southern Baptist Theological Seminary in Louisville, Kentucky. Ross Douthat writes a must-read commentary for the New York Times, where he serves as the youngest regular op-ed writer in the newspaper's history. He's the author of several books, including Privilege, Harvard and the Education of the Ruling Class, and his newest book is entitled Bad Religion, How We Became a Nation of Heretics. He's a graduate of Harvard University. He writes also film reviews for the National Review and many other articles for other publications. We're here to talk about his new book, Bad Religion. Welcome to Thinking in Public, Ross Douthat. Thank you so much for having me. It's a pleasure to be here. Well, I've looked forward to this conversation, and I've looked forward to reading your book ever since I saw the first publisher's notation about it. It's the kind of title that immediately appeals to an evangelical theologian. Someone writing about heresy, anyone writing about heresy, <laughs> is is actually bucking the trend of the last 200 years or so. How did you end up writing a book on heresy? Well, the, the idea for the book came to me, I would say, somewhere in the second term of George W. Bush's presidency, when... I felt like the debate over religion, religion and politics and so on in America was dominated by, well, really by the sort of new atheist assault on Christianity in particular and theism in general. So we had sort of endless debates between Richard Dawkins, Christopher Hitchens, Sam Harris and so on, and whatever champion of Christianity was being trotted out to meet them. Um, And obviously I found these debates very interesting and stimulating and provocative, but I felt like they painted a picture of um, America as a nation sort of divided between a traditional Christianity and secularism. And to me, that doesn't, that's not actually the story of religion in America at all. And, and so I set out to write a book that I thought would more fully capture the more complex reality um, of Christianity in America. And the term heresy, um, obviously it's a provocative term and theologically loaded and so on, especially coming from a Roman Catholic, um, but I felt like it's actually the precise word to describe what most of American religion looks like. We are no longer a traditionally Christian country. We're a country where the historic Christian churches, both Protestant and Catholic, are weaker, I think, than they've been in generations, if not ever in our history. But I don't think we're I think the culture, the religious culture of the country is so deeply influenced by Christianity still that it's not really right to say, as I think some some religious conservatives especially will say, oh, we're a post-Christian, we're even a pagan country. Um, and it's certainly wrong, I think, to say that we're anything like a secular country. So heresy seemed like, in addition to being a provocative word to use in the subtitle, it seemed like an accurate word to use for this kind of analysis. Well, you certainly are getting some attention here, and deservedly so, and yet I want to leave the Americans as heretics theme for a a later bit of our conversation. I want to return to how you began the book, describing two misconceptions about American religion. I think that'd be a helpful thing to unpack. Sure. I mean, so the first, you're you're putting me to the test in in remembering my own structure, but the, the, the first misconception is the well, I, I mentioned before this sort of, you know, religious conservative versus secular binary. Um, and the first misconception, I think, is kind of a religious conservative misconception, which is the idea that the chief enemy of Christian faith in the United States is a militant secularism. 
assumption comes, you know, it, it has real roots and real justifications. I think it emerges from um, the Supreme Court decisions on school prayer and other issues. It emerges from the fact that the American elite, um, particularly many of my fellow journalists and so on, are rather conspicuous in their secularism and their sort of, um, if not hostility, their slight incomprehension of religion. Um, and it sort of, so, so it comes, it comes out of that, and it, and it's, I think, a very important, um, a very important theme for the religious right, really, going back to the 1970s, and it's still an important theme today. You hear it a lot in the discussions of, for instance, the new health and human services regulations being placed on Catholic hospitals and so on, that, um, critics of those regulations will say, well, this is secular liberalism making war on religion and so on. Um, and I think that that's I I think that that's a misconception in part just because I think secularism, true secularism, is just much weaker than a lot of people give it credit for. Um, I'm and I, I think that it's even in Western Europe, which is again supposedly the most secular society in the world. If you start drilling down into public opinion polls about you know what people actually believe about God and the universe and so on, there's tons of residual religious and spiritual commitment. And I think that's true in spades in the United States, that many, many, many people who no longer identify with a particular Christian church or denomination are still, you know, they're, they're still, they still have religious convictions. They're, you know, going to the bookstore and buying books from the religion and self-help section that make metaphysical claims. And their, you know, their lives are oriented, oriented around metaphysical principles. And so, even though, yes, there is a kind of secular hostility to religion in the United States, I don't think it's, I, I don't think it's the, the, the factor doing the most to, say, pull people away from traditional Christian churches. And I think it's more useful in the case of something like the Obama White House's directives and so on to just say, no, this is the Obama White House picking a fight with a specific religious body, my own Catholic church, than to assume there's sort of a, a pure sort of secularist crusade going on. Um, but then the other misconception I've sort of just hinted at it in the answer I gave is the secularist misconception, the idea that um, that that it is one desirable or two even possible to create some sort of purely secular society, um, and with it, I think the characteristic liberal and secular idea that you know everything they dislike about American religion is the fault of Christian orthodoxy, of you know too much dogma too much doctrine, too much institutional religion, when in reality, as, as I've said, the story of religion in America is that institutional faith is remarkably weak, and that, you know, many many of the things that contemporary liberals don't like about contemporary religion are things that Orthodox Christians should dislike about it as well, the sort of garishness of prosperity preachers, right. the sort of New Age hooey that you get on, some, you know, on talk shows and so on. Now, I want to give you credit. I think you set the case very well there. I, I also want to make a counter-suggestion, and that is that I think a part of this is a matter of, uh, you might say, theological or social placement, and then the use of vocabulary. Because when uh, when my tribe, so to speak, it speaks about secularization, we're actually speaking of it in a rather technical sense uh, that will be measured by sociologists of religion, uh, the, the kind of thing that... Uh, that that is ideological, not just uh, not just a part of the demographic. Uh, and, and at the same time, we're also defining it over against Orthodox Christianity, not just uh, someone who might have some kind of uh, of metaphysical principle. And, and right. I would have to say that one of the best lines in your book 
that that affirms this, I, I think, in a, in a in a very important way, uh, is uh, the line that's on page eighty two in your book, and and you you speak about uh, the crisis of Orthodox Christianity in America, and then you say this. Among the tastemakers and power brokers and intellectual agenda setters of late 20th century America, Orthodox Christianity was completely declassé. And I think that's uh, that's a stunningly clear and accurate statement. Yes, and I and I also think it, it's absolutely true that, you know, the terminology issue makes a real difference. And there is obviously a whole argument um, associated with a lot of thinkers, but uh, for instance, the philosopher Charles Taylor in his book, A Secular Age, the doorstop of a book that came out a few years ago, that really modernity is by definition more secular than the, you know, more Christian society that that it has gradually displaced, and that even the most religious person in early 21st century America is infinitely more secularized than was someone in the 17th century, or certainly the 14th or 12th century, and so I, I completely respect that argument, and in and in that sense, I'm happy to say that we do live in a more secularized society. I'm the point I'm trying to make, though, is that I think that people on both sides of this sort of left-right, religious, conservative, social, liberal debate underestimate the resilience of yes. um, religious sentiment as a motivator in a post sort of orthodox Christian age. No, I think that's very well stated. And, you know, Charles Taylor, in that massive book you referenced, uh, speaks of three conditions of belief that are sequential. And uh, and he suggests that that people who inhabit the intellectual elites in the West right now are living in a, a set of conditions of belief he defines as impossible to believe, the complete reversal of what was the medieval synthesis with impossible not to believe, with modernity right. having this middle position of possible not to believe. And so it, believing now, to use Peter Berger's category, requires an assertion of will that believing did not uh, publicly require. Uh, during many of the periods you, you write about so eloquently in your book, I want to take you into that for a moment, because uh, you write about something of a high tide. Uh, uh, you, you talk about uh, the, the kind of religious establishment that existed at the midpoint of the 20th century, both on the Catholic and the Protestant side, and quite frankly, most people under the age of, say, 40 today don't even know that that ever existed. And then, and that may be too generous, a chronological reference. Yeah, the, the argument, I start the book with what scholars of that era talk about as the, the mid-century revival, basically, of, of American Christianity, which was this period after the Second World War when, on the popular level, you had a large increase in church attendance. You had sort of people were moving out to the suburbs and church construction. There was a huge church construction boom. Um, the popular culture, you know, there was a spate of biblical epics from Hollywood and so on. Bible sales went way up. Um, but at the same time, it wasn't just a sort of popular and populist phenomenon. It was also an era of um, sort of real intellectual ferment. It was a period that produced um, you know, some various giants of public theology. It was a very fertile period for Christian Christian literature, I think, particularly in um, in the Catholic tradition. There was what, what people talk about as the, quote-unquote, Catholic Renaissance in literature that was, you know, everyone from Flannery O'Connor and Thomas Merton and so on. Graham Greene um, so and that's, on. that's where I begin. And the argument I make is not so much that this was, that this high tide necessarily reflected sort of 
a status quo that had existed in American religion forever. It it was more actually that this world had been kind of rebuilt after American Christianity had gone through it, a previous period of crisis um, in the early part of the century, which obviously Protestants know as sort of the various modernist fundamentalist wars and so on. Um, but, you know, that there was this period, particularly in the 20s and 30s, when there was a sense that, you know, socialism, Marxism, fascism, some secular ideology would, you know, the future belonged to to those secular ideologies, that Christianity was increasingly irrelevant and so on. And then the experience of the Depression, the World War, and sort of the horrors associated with totalitarianism created, I think, a real, if temporary, opening for the modern West to sort of reassess whether it, you know, needed to look back a little bit to the Christianity as it seemed to leave behind. Yes, especially in that Cold War period. And and I thought one of the most interesting sections of your book is is where you look at those figures, Reinhold Niebuhr, Billy Graham, uh, and uh, Fulton Sheen, and Martin Luther King Jr., and you throw in some others, such as John Courtney Murray, uh, so influential in the Catholic transition, and, and, and other things. And, and to tell you the truth, as much as I found that fascinating, I also found it really frustrating, because I thought, Ross isn't being entirely honest here. The, 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 this is not intellectually honest. And then you corrected everything. Uh, on pages 51 and following, because you do you do present that as a, as kind of a golden era, and then you say true golden ages do not exist. And uh, and one of the things I have to point out as a, as an evangelical is that uh, as much as Niebuhr was a titanic figure and one of the last great public intellectuals who was a, a theologian in America, uh, his orthodoxy was actually more neo than orthodox. You know, he, he actually rejected. He he wanted to recapture an understanding of sin and of sinfulness. But he he relocated it away from the individual into social structures and and basically denied any sense of uh, of of depravity or what we would call original sin, and uh, and I thought you really did a great correction there, showing that even though there was this high tide of cultural influence, well, I especially appreciated what you said about those who had uh, who had made the transition in Roman Catholicism in terms of magisterial authority and, and then were completely. Uh, undone by the intersection of the personal, the political, and the theological that came with the 60s. Right. And this is, I mean, the challenge, you know, any book has to start somewhere. And the challenge in um, sort of celebrating an era is that, as you say, you can end up sort of being intellectually dishonest and underestimating the extent to which, uh, you know, true golden ages don't exist. And the extent to which, too, that the the present day heresies that I talk about in the book, obviously, you know, they were present in 1950s America as well. So, um, you know, we have Joel Osteen. They have Norman Vincent Peale. <laughs> we have Elizabeth Gilbert's Eat, Pray, Love. They had, you know, Anne Morrow Lindbergh's Gift from the Sea and so on. Um, so it's it's and but but I, I appreciate that you thought that, that that the correction worked because it is a, it's a challenge because part of the argument I'm trying to make is that there were there were things about this mid-century era that contemporary Christianity, both Protestant and Catholic, have lost, and that deserve to be remembered, celebrated, and potentially recaptured. That doesn't mean that, you know, every, everything was perfect in 1957, and the New Jerusalem had descended to earth, and so on. And so, for instance, I talk a lot in that chapter about Christian convergence, right? The right. idea that sort of neo-Orthodoxy was pulling mainline Protestantism back towards historic Christianity to some extent that figures like Billy Graham and Carl Henry and so on were tugging evangelicalism a little bit out of the fundamentalist ghetto, that figures like John Courtney Murray and Fulton Sheen and so on were 
bringing Catholicism to the American mainstream, and so that there was more than there had been before, a kind of Protestant-Catholic center, a kind of meeting of the minds, and so on. But obviously, all of that coexisted with, um, uh, you know, Catholic Church was still the pre-Vatican II Church. Um, Evangelical Protestantism was still thick with people who were convinced that the Pope was the Antichrist, and so on. Um, So it's not as if the existence of the convergence, I think, was real, but so were continued divisions, polemics, and all the rest of it. I think you landed in your chapter that you entitled The Lost World in a very interesting place, and I think you made an an, an assessment that many uh, from inside uh, institutional Christianity uh, now recognize as as being true, though unnoticed at the time. You you write on page 53, the crucial element in each of these cases, and you were writing about the uh, these titans of, of public intellectual and theological life in the, in the 50s and their institutions. You said in each of these cases, the crucial element was a deep and abiding confidence, not just faith alone, but a kind of faith in Christian faith and a sense that after decades of marginalization and division, Orthodox Christians might actually be on the winning side of history. And uh, then you offer a statistical analysis that is just devastating, in, in which you indicate that all of these mainline Protestant denominations that uh, that thought themselves on the growth curve of, of American energy uh, found themselves within the span of less than a generation in precipitous decline and Catholicism facing its own internal challenges. Well, and this is, in a way, that story is well known. I think, you know, people who follow American Christianity have this general understanding that, okay, mainline Protestantism was potent in 1955 and has been weak and getting weaker ever since. But it really was astonishing for me um, to go back into the statistics and, you know, drawing on obviously famous books like um, Why Conservative Churches Are Growing and so on from that era. But just this, it, it wasn't just the decline, it was the precipitousness of that decline, the speed with which the number of United Methodists and, you know, various branches of Presbyterianism and so on fell off, the collapse of their foreign missions and their, you know, all, all of the, all of the aspects of a sort of rich, vibrant, institutional Christian faith. And yeah, between and in Catholicism, that was less true in terms of sort of church attendance. I mean, mass attendance falls off, but not as not as deeply, and the overall number of Catholics keeps going up. But if you look at the number of priests and nuns, religious vocations and so on, the, again, the decline in the 60s and 70s is just, is just staggering, and one from which I think American Catholicism hasn't really recovered. Like the skilled writer that he is, Ross Douthat sets the stage for his further analysis by giving us an understanding of what's come before. His incisive, indeed devastating analysis of the decline of institutional Christianity from the midpoint of the 20th century to the present is something we desperately need to understand. His statistical recounting, just in terms of the numbers of the institutional loss, the membership losses of of organized Christianity, tell part of the story. But of course, he goes deeper than that. And in the next part of our conversation, we'll go deeper still. So you set the stage for us at this point in the book by demonstrating misconceptions that you want to correct, by, uh, by also setting forth an understanding of what has changed so dramatically in American public Christianity from the midpoint of the 20th century to the present, And from that point, we can really talk about the subtitle of your book, How We Became a Nation of Heretics. So let's talk heresy. When you use the word heretic or you use the word heresy, 
What do you mean by that? I mean um, religious ideas, um, movements, books, people, you name it, that on the one hand are still so either influenced directly by Christian ideas or sort of personally fascinated by Christianity in general, Jesus of Nazareth in particular, um, that it doesn't make sense to say that they're, you know, that they've founded a completely new religious movement, a new faith. Um, but at the same time, whose ideas diverge sharply enough from um, what what I consider, and I'm, you know, trying to sort of draw, you know, pitch a pretty big tent here, <laughs> one that encompasses Protestants, Eastern Orthodox, and Catholics alike, but that diverges from what I think is a common core of great tradition Christianity. Um, and and it, inevitably, you know, this is, there's, I'm, I'm trying to not write as a Catholic, so I'm not relying on sort of magisterial pronouncements to determine who and who is not a heretic. So obviously the lines I draw and so on are going to necessarily be a bit fuzzy. Uh, but I do think that a lot of the people and trends that I'm talking about fit pretty well into that into that category. No, I think you captured it well. And uh, one of my concerns when I picked up the book is whether or not you were going to go for kind of a soft understanding of heresy in the sociological sense, uh, or whether you were going to actually deal with heresy as a theological category. And I have to tell you, as a theologian, I was pleased you you acknowledged chose, the theological importance there. Two. That's right. Uh, <laughs> much, much better, because that, that's really the only thing we're talking about. Uh, because if, if the others is a sociological process, there's there's not much that, that can be said in terms of analysis. But we're actually talking about truth claims, doctrines, teachings. And uh, and this is where you actually get at uh, what you identify as many of the, the streams of heresy. Uh, and heresy, as you said, is, is derivative of something else. So we're, we're talking about things that at least owe their origins to Christianity or the Christian truth claim or the Christian tradition but has significantly eviscerated that truth claim, uh, that, uh, that, that faith of its, of its doctrinal center. So talk about some of those things that you see as evidences of bad religion in America today. Well, I, I start with a category that I think is, it's hard to pin down to a specific theology, but I start with the broad category of sort of revisionist accounts of the life of Jesus Christ himself, because I think that's the clearest example of how American religion remains sort of in the shadow of Christianity and obsessed with the person of Jesus Christ himself. And so I sort of run through the scholarly treatments of this material, well, everyone from sort of the Jesus Seminar to Elaine Pagels, um, basically everyone who since the 60s has tried to fashion usually a more sort of politically and socially liberal Christianity out of the Gnostic Gospels, the various you know, various re-readings and revisions of the canonical Gospels themselves, and so on. And But then I sort of end that chapter not with a, a scholar, but with the figure of Dan Brown and the Da Vinci Code, uh, because I think that is sort of the the best cultural expression of of, of the influence of that kind of revisionism, um, that it's, you know, it's, it's less about sort of the, the whole, the entire quote-unquote real Jesus project has, in the end, been less about building up a single coherent alternative picture of Jesus, a single coherent alternative to the canonical New Testament account, and it's more just been about sort of destabilizing and creating the idea that, you know, Jesus could have been anybody, that his identity depends on whatever you want to find in him, 
Um, and Brown's book, which is, you know, completely non-scholarly and totally ridiculous, is sort of the perfect encapsulation of, 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 um, of how that works. So that's, I think that chapter tries to sort of lay the foundation for the rest of what I'm talking about, about heresy. I'm right. saying other heresies are sort of emerging in the context of a destabilized understanding of Jesus's life, um, his message, his works, his crucifixion and resurrection, and so on. You know, um, Ross, one of the things that just surprises me is is how people think this is new. And, uh, you know, just a little bit of historical consciousness takes us back to the late 19th century and uh, the first quest for the historical Jesus, and a figure such as Albert Schweitzer, who was no evangelical, uh, let's just say, who uh, who said all these questers, uh, you know, trying to argue for a this or that historical Jesus, were actually looking into a well and seeing the reflection of their own faces at the bottom. And 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 that's pretty much what you have now. I mean, if if it's Elaine Pagels, uh, you have a Jesus that looks like he's ready for tenure at Princeton, and uh, it, it, you just have the same thing over and over again. But one of the effective points you make in that chapter is the fact that these revisionisms are destabilizing. In other words, they haven't produced some new thing. They've just produced many, almost countless individual new things. Right, and I finish up the chapter because it's mostly a chapter about political liberals um, with a long quotation from Glenn Beck's radio show. Because, you know, Beck is obviously, politically speaking, about as far from <laughs> Elaine Pagels and the Princeton theological faculty as you can possibly get. And yet there's this, you know, moment on Beck's radio show where he's drawing some sort of analogy about, you know, preserving America's founding principles in an age of persecution and so on. And the analogy he reaches for is a Dan Brown Gnostic Gospels analogy where, you know, he sort of spins out the story about how the truth about Christianity was hidden away because the Emperor Constantine was going to persecute the Gnostics and, you know, just this totally historically ridiculous story. But I think it, that example just reflects, as you said, just sort of how far and wide this destabilization has rippled so that a right-wing radio host finds himself saying the same thing as a left-wing, you know, Ivy League scholar about um, about the history of the early church. Now, I have to say, I chuckled out loud when I read that. Uh, I felt the pain of it, too, but I also thought you left out a very crucial category here, and that is Glenn Beck is not only a political conservative of sorts, he, he's also a Mormon, and uh, and Mormonism fits within your narrative as well, but Mormonism actually has made the argument before Dan Brown made it that the Trinity is just an imposition of, of, of Constantine and politics. I thought, well, isn't that fascinating? Here is you know, <laughs> that is, no, that is that's you're you're absolutely yeah. right. I mean, one of one of the things in the book is that I'm I, I do talk a bit about about Mormonism, but I I do try and focus particular right. energy and attention on specifically sort of what I what I think are the most potent post mid century heresies. So I sort of Mormonism, Christian Science, the Jehovah's Witnesses, a lot of the various what nineteenth century American histories or heresies are are treated somewhat more glancingly in the book. Yeah, but you also but, but, do but draw a good but, historical line. I mean, for instance, from uh, from Christian science and New Thought to the prosperity gospel. To the prosperity gospel. No, yeah. that's true. And, so no, track I do, that out right. for us. I do us. try and root, root it, root it yeah. a bit in, in, in the American past. Um, but, of course, the prosperity gospel is the next example of a heresy, and I think it's that's actually the cleanest example, because it is, you're there, you really are talking about people who explicitly say, we are Christians, you know, full stop, no questions asked, um, and who have a a sort of core doctrinal divergence from New Testament 
Christianity, just in sort of their overall attitude, in their overall attitude towards towards wealth, and in their specific view of sort of the mechanics of prayer, um, and you know, sort of what what happens when we approach God in prayer, and what we can expect. You know, I have to say, as as a theologian, my response to prosperity theology is that it's just it is exactly what you say; it's a heresy. But I have to say, at the other level, and this is where your cultural analysis is invaluable, at the other level, I just have to wonder, how can people hold on to something that is so self-evidently false? You, you well, know, this is, this is to, to me, this is one of the things that I try and do in the book, is, is at least come up with a partial explanation for that, because I, I think it is, it is easy, on, both for serious Christians and for sort of, you know, secular liberals, to look at something like the prosperity gospel and say, well, this is just complete rubbish. How could anyone possibly believe it? And I think even even as I'm criticizing it, I think I, I try and give it, um, I, I try and come up with an explanation for its theological appeal. I, and I think part of the answer, and I could be wrong about this, but is the extent to which it seems to, in a way, resolve the problem of evil, right? It sort of resolves the theodicy question, the whole, you know, why do you know, why does a good God let bad things happen to good people? Um, and the answer, of course, is that God lets that happen because those good people haven't actually figured out how to, you know, they don't have sufficient faith and they haven't figured out how to ask God for things in the in, in the correct fashion. So it's sort of a version of some of the things that are said to Job by the by his by his by his friends in the, in, in the book of Job. And, and that can seem like a cruel message, right? If, let's say, you've just been foreclosed on, and a prosperity yes. preacher says, "Well, the problem is you just, you know, you know, you haven't you haven't been right with God," but it can also be a kind of comforting message because it suggests that there really is actually something you can do about any kind of suffering you face, and there isn't that sort of mystery of suffering that it, I think traditional Christianity tends to tends to emphasize, where you know there is there is the cross. Right, and there is the 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 idea that um, that that when that when good people suffer, it is not necessarily a reflection of their failure to pray hard enough. Ross, I have to tell you that uh, about twenty years ago, I guess it would have to be now, when I was a newspaper editor, I got a call from a reporter at your newspaper who asked me if you had to identify the most credible faith healer to interview. To whom would you point? And I simply said, you know, I wouldn't talk to one who was under two or three hundred years old. Uh, that that would establish credibility to me, and, and that's why when I look at this, I did, you know they all tend to die right on time. Just look at the gravestones, and and you look at this and you think, how can that happen? And and yet, it's quintessentially American. Uh, this is this is something that is explainable in America, especially in the 20th century, and uh, and I think you do a pretty good job of not only the theological analysis but the cultural analysis as well. Yeah, it's 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 interesting. I personally, um, I'm. I'm a Catholic because my family became Catholic when I was a teenager. Uh, but before we were Catholic, we were, for a time, both evangelical and sort of in, but also in the Pentecostal world. Um, and in, in fact, you know, my parents basically went from being sort of, um, you know, religious but somewhat lukewarm Episcopalians to being more serious Christians in part because of experiences they had with a faith healer in, uh, in, 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 um, in southern Connecticut, of all places, who would sort of—she had a healing ministry and would fill high school auditoriums and so on. 
and people would speak in tongues and so forth. And what what I would probably say to 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 a reporter who call, who you know I guess one of my colleagues now who asked me about that is you know I I would say well look look for the faith healer who who whose ministry never seems to have that much money because one of the yeah. things that I think was actually authentic about the ministry that uh, my that my parents experienced was it wasn't at, at least as far as I can tell and admittedly I was you know seven or eight years old at the time but it really didn't seem to have been set up to enrich the people running it um, you know they they were um, sort of perpetually short on cash and driving their battered bus from one high school auditorium to another. And that, to, to me, that's sort of what's, what's striking about so much prosperity preaching is just sort of, you know, it's sort of obvious, but the, the, life, the, lifestyles, of the, the lifestyles of the preachers themselves. Well, and that raises a very interesting point. Uh, I think it was uh, a, a famed Southern historian who wrote about uh, that particular substratum of American religion, as the religion of the dispossessed, and he made the interesting observation that it, wealthy people don't need prosperity theology. Uh, those who, who feel that they are financially on the short end of the stick, uh, they're the ones who need uh, prosperity theology. And by the way, then you have the kind of Marxist analysis that comes in and says, well, that's why you didn't have a revolution in the United States, because you had you had the dispossessed looking for spiritual answers rather than, uh, rather than revolution. So th- there are all kinds of avenues there. But you wrote very perceptively. I want to turn the chapter to where you deal with uh, this this God within, kind of the new age, uh, the, the transformation of doctrine into mere spirituality. What, what are you talking about there? Well, to pick up on what you were just saying, if you think of prosperity theology as the theology of, let's say, sort of the striving, struggling, working-class American, potentially, who is sort of whose chief, you know, who who has some money, but whose chief challenge is sort of figuring out where the next paycheck is coming from, and who feels reassured by the message of a figure like Joel Osteen. Then the next chapter in the book, what I call the cult of the God within, or therapeutic theology and so on, that's a heresy that's pitched towards maybe the upper middle class, people who feel a little more comfortable about their wealth and their sort of economic position and who are looking for something different from religion. They're looking for sort of personal contentment and the validation of, of, their, of, their, own, of their own lifestyle choices. And so I start that chapter with um, Elizabeth Gilbert's Eat, Pray, Love, this huge bestseller um, from, I guess, five years ago now, that is a book about a successful upper-middle-class woman who, you know, is married and has a devoted husband and so on, but feels completely discontented with her life and wants to sort of set out in search of authentic spiritual experience, even if that, of course, means, you know, divorcing her husband and traveling the world and ending up with a handsome Brazilian divorcee in Bali. Um, and I think it's a fascinating book, again, because I think that the, the it, I, I think that the, her quest for mystical experience is entirely genuine. Like I don't see anything fraudulent at all about about Gilbert. Um, you know, some of these sort of new age holy men and gurus and so on. As with prosperity preaching, it seems like something of a something of a racket. But with Eat, Pray, Love, um, it feels sort of you know her her quest is genuine. She's really looking for enlightenment. She's really looking for an encounter with God. But it's just all of the mystical experiences she has just serve to sort of yeah. validate you know, what thing she already believed in about about her life choices, to make her feel better about her divorce, better about how she left things with her husband, and so on. 
And that, to me, that's the, the essence of this sort of God within heresy. It's the idea that you look for God inside yourself, which, again, in traditional Christian mysticism, there's, there are elements of that idea, but it, it elevates the self over, over, over God. It says, well, whatever you find inside yourself, um, that's sort of the, the promptings of your highest thought, your innermost spirit. You, you need to listen to that and not to any exterior authority. And obviously, from a Christian point of view, um, well, you know, we, we think your innermost self might just be the self that's most corrupted by original Exactly. Thing. Well, then you would have uh, uh, analysts such as uh, Philip Reef and Christopher Lash who would come along and, and define it as nothing more than just uh, barely disguised narcissism. Right, and that was what it was fascinating to go back to to uh, Reef's The Triumph of the Therapeutic, because that was a book that was written in the middle of the 1960s, um, in this, this period when there Absolutely. Was, all of these religious writers thought that the future of religion was in sort of secular politics, right? Mm-hmm. This was the age of Harvey Cox's The Secular City and books, you know, books like that, where Christianity was going to be transformed sort of into a cause of political, of political improvement, a sort of, you know, refurbished social gospel. And Reef, look, looking at the same trend, says, no, 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 it's not, you know, the future of religion isn't, it, it, it isn't politics at all. If anything, it's going to be increasingly apolitical. It's going to be more therapeutic, more about sort of the meeting of personal needs. And I think, you know, that there's there's a passage in there when he talks about sort of, I, I, I'm forgetting the exact line, but that the society of the future will mount psychodramas as often as the medieval society mounted miracle plays. And I think that's just this uncanny anticipation of reality television, right? Right, and he adds, what, what is yeah. what is so much of our television today? It's right. not sort of the mounting of the mounting of these sort of semi-therapeutic, semi-hysterical um, psychodramas. And you know, Reef pointed to something that people at the time thought was this grotesque exaggeration when he said, and I'm paraphrasing him here, that basically in the future everyone would be seen as either in therapy or in denial, and that's pretty right. much and where I, we are. I, I, that is where we are, although I do think my my one disagreement with his book is that I think he was writing in an era when um, sort of Freudianism still had still had a certain amount of power, and I, right. I think he, he overestimated in a way the sort of purely psychological element of the therapeutic and slightly underestimated the mystical element, um, but that's just sort of my, at least my own my own read on it. Okay, now speaking of your read, we, ha- we have to get to the end of the story, and uh, you clearly have set up the dynamic, you have, uh, you've perceptively diagnosed the problem. Let me just ask you, uh, is there a cure? Do, do, you, do you see the future as uh, a regaining of the kind of confidence you wrote about uh, Christianity having in the, the mid-20th century, or what do you see? Well, the book is, as I say at one point, it's over- written overall in a spirit of pessimism, um, in part because I do have a slightly determinist side, uh, both when I'm talking about the decline of institutional Christianity and and its future. I think that, you know, the decline of institutional faith in the United States is bound up in part in a broader movement away from institutions that you see across our national life in sort of disillusionment with political institutions, the breakdown of the family, and so on. And as, you know, it's sort of the working out of, um, you know, some of Alexis de Tocqueville's fears about where sort of democracy and individualism would ultimately go. And so to, to the extent that I find that, you know, I think that that's a very powerful force in American life, 
it makes it harder to see where the um um you know where where a revive institutional faith would come from because part of what made that mid-century moment so distinctive is that again it was sort of a high tide of american institutionalism in all its forms it was a high tide of faith in government a high tide of elks clubs and masonic lodges and, and that's and right so forth. and so newspapers that's, there, that's the root of my pessimism but then yeah. i do also try and sort of you know sketch out different different reasons for optimism and just more generally sort of different paths that you know that christians can take there's sort of the idea that what's needed is a kind of withdrawal from the world sort of you know into whether it's into homeschooling or sort of in you know within my own church the sort of latin enthusiasts for the traditional latin mass and so on and this this idea that sort of christians should withdraw into their communities and then reemerge eventually as the light of the world the salt of the earth and so on and what i what i worry about with that is just the fact that i don't know if if America is sufficiently post-Christian for Christians to be allowed to withdraw from it, if that makes sense. It and does. Both in, in sort of Protestant and in Catholic circles, it's, and I, I hear this from my fellow conservative Catholics a fair amount, this sense of like, well, you know, we'll just let the liberal wings of Catholicism sort of drift away and decline, and then we'll have a sort of smaller, purer church. But, you know, all of those sort of lukewarm, liberalish, whatever Catholics, they're still baptized confirmed christians you know they're not actually they're not actually pagan um and we i think you know we have we have obligations towards them and 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 so it's just that's i that's what makes me doubtful about sort of the more withdrawalist side of contemporary christianity but what that leaves is sort of you know the challenge of of engagement um amid a sort of general cultural skepticism about about orthodoxies of all kinds. And so, you know, it's a tremendously difficult thing to do. I have two thoughts about that I want to test with you. And, and the first is internal. The second is external. Internally, uh, we can note several things, such as uh, the fact that renewal movements uh, were attempted in all the mainstream uh, mainline liberal Protestant denominations, and every one of them failed. Uh, and, and then in your book, you reference a fascinating study that's been central to my own research for a long time. And it's about 20 years old now. We're getting there. It's it's the Vanishing Boundary Study. Oh, really? And, uh, read, yeah. That's... Oh, yes. But, you know, at the end of that book, they, they, the, the Vanishing Boundaries, by the way, are, are twofold. They're doctrinal boundaries and behavioral boundaries, where you have theology right. and morality there, and especially the exclusivity of the gospel of Christ and, and, and the rest. And they come down at the end of the book, they say, we could, and, and the idea, of course, is that they, they've They've so erased the boundaries between the church and the secular world that there's no longer any sufficient reason to stay in the church and to exactly. identify with the church. And and so at the end of the book, they say there might be a possibility of a reversal of these trends if we were to forfeit our doctrinal pluralism and uh, and our, our moral liberalism. And then in one sentence, they say, but since we're not going to do that, we'll have to find something else. <laughs> I thought, well, yeah, okay, if you could come up with a parody you couldn't do better than the way they, they just uh, all of a sudden in the book say, yep, we're not going to do that. So I think internally in most of mainline Protestantism, and, uh, and at least by my perception in terms of, uh, of at least academic Catholicism, it's going to be very difficult to, uh, to, 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 to revitalize a commitment to orthodoxy, e- even as there are going to be some very, very articulate spokesmen uh, and leaders to argue otherwise. The second thing I want, I want to test you on is the external, because I think something that's not so much in your book as you look to the future, but I'm certain is on your mind, and that is the fact that the external pressures on Orthodox Christianity 
are going to become inevitably of far more uh, heated and intense because increasingly Orthodox Christianity is going to look more sectarian in, in a sociological sense over against the larger culture. So what do you see in those, in, in those terms? Well, what, what, what I see there, I, I spend a, a fair amount of time, in, particularly in the historical sections of the book, talking about sort of, you know, the common ground and common effort that the culture war created between evangelicals and Catholics. Um, and I think that the phenomenon you're, you're describing where the, you know, the external pressures on, on Orthodox Christian churches mount and where, you know, whether it's uh, the, you know, health and human services, um, regulations on contraception in Catholic colleges or sort of, you know, the impact of the spread of gay marriage on sort of laws about non-discrimination and so on, they're going to continue to be places where, you know, many, many places where sort of if only from from um, a sort of defensive side of things, that evangelical Catholic alliance is, on, is only going to be strengthened. What I think is that the challenge for both Protestants and Catholics is that in the end, a thriving, robust orthodoxy, I think, really depends on confessionalism. And it depends on institutions, and this is, of course, my Catholic bias coming into play, but I think it's true, on institutions that are capable of sort of transmitting the faith across multiple generations. So that don't just depend on sort of personalities of, you know, individual leaders and pastors and so on. And in a way, I think that one of the big dangers for Christianity right now is that sort of the political ecumenism that's been, you know, necessitated by the phenomenon you described, the sort of cultural pressure against Orthodox Christianity, might make it in a way harder for sort of both on the Catholic and the Protestant side, a sort of the kind of robust confessionalism that um, that Christianity needs uh, needs in the long run. I'm not sure about that, but I when I do, I, I went to an evangelical event recently where you know they asked um, participants to you know list their list their affiliation and so on, and huge proportion listed their affiliation as, as non-denominational, and in a way that's sort of part of what has strengthened. American evangelicalism since the Billy Graham era, right? A sort of willingness not to have, you know, sort of endlessly fragmented sort of one breakaway sect versus another breakaway sect, but sort of to identify, you know, to rally around a common evangelical identity, which in culture war debates becomes often a common evangelical and Catholic identity. But in a way, my big fear is that that, you know, as important as that is, it doesn't provide, you know, it, it, it provides for the next 10 years, but not the next 100 years. Um, so that's sort of that's sort of the maybe slightly idiosyncratic place where um, um, where I, I worry about how Christians will react to sort of this this new world we're entering. You have no idea how uh, how non idiosyncratic that sounds uh, to this confessional Baptist. Well, excellent. <laughs> I'm, I'm, I'm speaking to the right audience. Yeah, absolutely. And uh, and I think you, you speak, as you write, with incredible perception. And Ross, it's been an honor to have you today with me on Thinking in Public. And uh, I'll just uh, remind you that there are many folks out there who are reading your column and now reading your books, and, uh, and at least in some part, due to this conversation, also hearing your voice. I appreciate your time today. I really appreciate the opportunity. Thank you so much.
Ross Douthat has given us more than a little bit to think about. He's actually presented something of an encyclopedic analysis of religion in America, not only the 21st century, but looking back to the 20th. He also raises some of the most important questions that we can consider as we think about Christianity in the 21st century looking ahead. To that we now turn. I really did look forward to reading Ross Douthat's book, Bad Religion, How We Became a Nation of Heretics. For one thing, I was just glad to see a book that used the word heresy or heretics in a very serious way. As I said in the interview, I was a little concerned before I saw the book that it was going to take that soft understanding of heresy, the Peter Berger definition in which heresy is just the condition of making choices, the condition of holding to a specific doctrine or, or theological system in the face of pluralism. That's not what Russ Douthat did. Instead, he went right into the heart of the historic Christian understanding of what constitutes heresy and, and what makes one a heretic. And then he, he really does the scandalous thing of looking back to the 20th century when most American Christians, Protestant, Catholic, and otherwise, thought that the religion, the institutional presence of Christianity, was at its very zenith, and he showed that the seeds for its destruction were already sown there. And those seeds were not only cultural and philosophical and ideological and sociological, they were deeply theological as well. Now, the rest of the conversation was absolutely fascinating. And in the main, I find Russ Douthat's diagnosis of the problem very convincing. As a matter of fact, we're reading a lot of the same books, thinking a lot of the same thoughts. He's writing, however, from a very privileged position as an editorial columnist for the New York Times, someone who is in a rather constant conversation with some of those about whom he's writing. He's also in a position there in Manhattan to see, even institutionally, the significant shifts in the, the fate of organized Christianity in metropolitan, postmodern, whatever you want to call the contemporary state of America. And then you start to read the book and you realize this is a deeply thoughtful man. He's not just writing in order to tell a story. He's writing because he cares deeply about the story. And that's where it gets even more interesting. I read his book as an evangelical theologian. I read it knowing that Ross Douthat is a Roman Catholic. I knew of his background, being in Pentecostalism and then being a teenage convert to Catholicism. And then I understand his concerns, thinking as a traditional practicing Catholic about these very trajectories and trends of which he's writing. And, you know, when he writes about evangelicalism, I think he often gets it right. As a matter of fact, I'll go ahead to say I think he most often gets it right. The criticism he makes of conservative evangelicalism is one we need to look at very carefully. He suggests that especially in the last part of the 20th century, what evangelical Christianity became for many was a haven for political conservatism rather than a deep theological conservatism, a deep embrace of theological orthodoxy. And then he suggests that this opened the door, or at least facilitated the expansion of the kinds of heresies he talks about openly, the, the self-help movement, the, the narcissism of the, of the God within, the, the revisionist theologies that, of course, are openly embraced by the theological left, but have an amazing, at least, interest and traction, even among those who think themselves to be theological conservatives. And, of course, the prosperity theology itself and the false gospel of prosperity, which uh, not only is still with us, but quite frankly is, uh, is, is the great engine of much of Christian publishing and Christian radio and and what's called the Christian media out there in the larger world. We need to recognize the fact to our humiliation that that is the public face of what is called Christianity that is seen by many Americans. Now, what we did not have time to cover in any great detail 
in terms of our conversation is what Russ Douthat has done, for instance, with uh, the co-belligerents he writes about, with uh, evangelicals and Roman Catholics and, and and other moral and theological traditionalists. I, I think on the one hand, he does recognize the sociological and, and cultural context that has forced this kind of commonality. It, it, it's not just that you had all of a sudden at the end of the 20th century, traditional Roman Catholics and then and Orthodox evangelicals and, and others all of a sudden discovering their commonalities because they, they were looking for friends. It was that in, in the face of very real challenges, moral challenges, ideological, apologetic challenges, challenges to truth itself, and especially to the basic doctrines of the Christian faith and the basic moral teachings of historic and biblical Christianity, well, the, we found ourselves in, in a very declining and, and shrinking social space. And, uh, and that's where the co-belligerents really originated. But I think Ross is exactly right. When he got to the comment at the end, which is exactly where I hoped he would end, and that is with his concern that that kind of restricted social space, that kind of of forced commonality of, of, of purposes and concerns can lead to the loss of theological conviction in the name of theological conviction. In other words, it's not enough to be conservative. It's not enough to be evangelical. It, it, it's not enough uh, even to be little o orthodox in terms of, uh, of propositional truth. It is very important to be confessional. In other words, I'm one who must be clearly understood as I stake my life on the fact that the only future for evangelicalism is a confessional evangelicalism, an evangelicalism that is ever more committed not only to just traditional Christianity, but to the specific fullness of the understanding of what it means to be deeply convinced of the truth of the gospel and the implications of the gospel, the truth of the scripture and the teachings of the scripture in a way that is confessionally full and confessionally accountable and confessionally transmittable as well. It's going to be very interesting to see in the generation to come how these trajectories are either altered or corrected or continued. But this much is clear. Ross Douthat has begun a very healthy conversation in his book, Bad Religion, How We Became a Nation of Heretics. The reality is that in this book, Ross Douthat helps us all to see the danger of heresy not only out there far afield, but far closer to us in far more subtle ways. Reading the book's a good way to start a conversation, a kind of conversation that Catholics will take in one direction and conservative evangelicals, biblical evangelicals will take in a different direction. But this is the kind of book we read for our profit and think about in order to be more faithful. Thanks again to my guest, Ross Douthat, for thinking with me today. Before signing off, I want to encourage you to begin making plans now to attend D3, a special conference for high school students, which will take place June 25 to 28 on the campus of Southern Seminary. D3 is now in its third year. It's an important summer opportunity that comes complete with worship activities and life-shaping opportunities. We're going to be talking about the very kinds of convictions, confessionalism, and doctrine that come alive to young people in order to keep them grounded and rooted in the faith, able to give a reason for the hope that is within them. Join Dan Dumas, Eric Bancroft, and join me as we seek to develop students' understanding of leadership, worldview, and missions. For more information, visit sbts.edu. Thank you for joining me for Thinking in Public. Until next time, keep thinking. I'm Albert Moeller.